You're listening to the Family Discipleship Podcast, a podcast of training the church. Anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. So it's too hard. I'm too small. I can't do it. Rather than it's tiny and I can handle it, which is awesome. You know, we don't want kids who know how to skate through life. We want kids who know how to handle when the hard things come and the hard things are going to come. And so if we're not equipping them when they're younger, they're going to fall apart when they're older. I would say giving yourself grace. This is one of the things I talk about in the new book. Giving yourself grace is more important than trying harder. I think when we try harder, we just drive ourselves into the ground and we get more tense and more anxious and more angry. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, as usual, Mrs. Cassie Bryant. How are you doing today, Cassie? I'm good. I'm good. not going to tell you what I had to eat before this, because as we discussed <laughs> in the premiere episode, we talk about I talk about food too much. So, Oh, well, how'd you... Wave what my you, coffee what, mug at you. Oh, well, there you did it. So you're having coffee. Okay. Well, yeah, but that's not food. <laughs> Doesn't count. It's a consumable. I counted Next it in time, the food I won't category. even mention coffee. I'm oh, promise? No, you can talk about whatever you're eating I think there's something else anytime. to say. Anytime. Okay. Okay. And of course, my lovely wife, Mrs. Chelsea Griffin. How are you doing today, Chelsea? On top of the world. Yes, you are. You really are on top of the world. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, today we have with us a special guest, author, counselor extraordinaire, taco expert, Miss Sissy Goff, everybody. <laughs> Woo! Party time. Wow, that's my favorite part of my title. I've never heard that. Taco, taco expert. You like yes. tacos. Taco expert. I do like tacos. We can talk about food, Cassie. Yes. <laughs> okay, so if Cassie's landing in Nashville today, let's just say she gets yes. out of the airport and she's got two hours to kill and she needs to get the best taco in town. Where is she going, Sissy? Oh, Ladybird Taco is probably my favorite. It's okay. just a little local spot. Actually, there's now one in Birmingham, too. Okay. And also Superica. It would be oh, both yes. of those. Superica is very good. So she could good. stop by both, do a little round robin taco yes. lunch. Two tacos. I love that. I like bar taco there, too. Uh, I love bar taco. It's more of a taco. chain, I think. And there's one in Fort Worth here, but... Yeah, um, it's also very good. They've it got they've good. got a cauliflower taco. Dads, if you're listening and you're in Nashville and you need to get that Mother's Day gift for this weekend, maybe look into some tacos or a taco gift card. There you go. Or maybe something romantic that your wife would really like. <laughs> yeah. But maybe we'll not see. a taco <laughs> gift card. I don't know that it has to be romantic for Mother's Day. Just no, it doesn't. You know, thoughtful. do you guys have a lot of Mother's thoughtful. Day traditions? Cassie Bryant, are you into the Mother's Day traditions? You know, I've always told Eric he didn't need to stress about it because I'm not his mom. Oh. So I'm like, you know, our girls are going to grow up and they're going to figure it out. But right now, if it's cards and flowers or, you know, just something ho homemade, that's good with me. Because, the, you know, if they're like me, when I became a mom, I called my mom in tears. And it's just every Mother's Day since then has been oh. um, like, how can I give you everything? Because you gave me everything. That's so, sweet. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't we don't do anything big for Mother's no. Day. I also work on Mother's Day because it's always a Sunday. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Church worker. Yeah, yeah, church worker. I work on Mother's Day too. Sorry, Chelsea. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. I work on Mother's Day a lot too. That's true. <laughs> we all have to work. Well, let's get started. Before we jump into this conversation, Sissy, first you should know Cassie is a mother of three girls. Uh, 
Chelsea and I have three boys. When we've had David on before, your your co-host on your incredible podcast, Raising Boys and Girls, we bragged all about your podcast. We've Thank talked a you. lot about raising emotionally healthy boys. Looking forward to getting the other half today talking about uh, worry-free girls. Your book is so good. Cassie, yeah. any personal endorsement yes. real quick? Oh my goodness. We uh, had a tough year after coming out of the pandemic with our oldest going back to school and essentially received a diagnosis about anxiety and like performance anxiety, perfectionism test, all that kind of stuff. And it was second grade. I felt like, gosh, it's super young to be worried about these things. And so we snagged a, the workbook and um, the book Raising Worry-Free Girls. And it was so helpful naming her worry monster. And I mean, it really just got us through the year. And we still talk about, we call him Tiny because he gets Tiny. in her head. He like crawls oh. up into her ear and tells her things and gets into her head. And so That's Tiny the awesome. Worry Monster. Yeah. Tiny so that the book. Worry monster. And I've recommended it to so many other friends. So mm-hmm. we're really grateful for your work and how you've just blessed our home. Thank you. That means so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we bore, before we jump into more of the conversation around the work you've done, which is a really critical work, could you tell us just a little bit about you, about your ministry, about what you do? Yes. I have been counseling girls and families for 30 years now, which is wow. feels crazy, at a little place, a little yellow house called Daystar Counseling Ministries, which is where David Thomas is as well. He and I have been working together for 27 years. Wow. So we used to call ourselves the Donnie Marie of Parenting until all the parents were too young to know who Donnie and Marie were anymore, <laughs> which is really sad. But um, yeah, so I feel very privileged to get to do that work daily, headed in at noon to start counseling today. And out of that work have had the privilege of getting to write some and speak some and have our own little podcast and trying to help people beyond just the walls of Daystar. So, and I get yeah. to take my dog to work with me every day, which is one of my favorite parts of my job. <laughs> that was the, my daughter's favorite part of the book was that you really? also, we have a dog named Lucy. And so you our, do, yes, Cassie, it, it awesome. won you over instantly with my daughter. She's like, oh, I can Aww. trust this author. She has a dog named Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's great. Yes. Yes. She's sitting beside me now. You're an author of some really, really helpful stuff. One of the books you wrote is called Worry-Free Girls. And you have another book coming out about the worry-free parent coming out this fall, 2023. Now, yes. uh, tell me this, because uh, we talk about this all the time and I would love your input. But is there a reason that this generation of kids and adults is dealing with so much pervasive anxiety? Why why is it is it different in this generation? You've been counseling for 30 years. Does it seem like it's growing or does it seem like it's changing in any way? And why is that? It is very much growing. I, and not just for kids, for parents too. I would say I've never seen as much anxiety among kids. And girls are twice as likely as boys to deal with it, which wow. is why I wrote the book specifically for parents of girls. But I I would say post-pandemic, I have never sat with as many parents who are anxious Mm. or who feel like failures as I have in the last year in particular. And so, you know, I think there's so many things. It's hard to name specifically what's contributed to it. I mean, obviously technology for all of us is a huge piece of that trickling all the way down to as soon as they start to be on screens. I think that's a significant Mm. piece. I think for parents... Part of the issue, honestly, is that we know more. You know, we know more in this generation than ever. And so I think often that translates to a sense of failure because I'm not doing all the things that I'm hearing about all the time. And I can't, you know, there's just not a way to let go of it or just stop hearing it in some ways. And so I think there's this sense of pressure among parents that's, that's making them more aware of how they're missing the mark just because they're fallible people. And with kids, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think 
I wish I, I will never be a lobbyist, I don't think, but I wish I could lobby for our school systems and say school's too much pressure. You know, the the amount of pressure that kids feel taking tests to get in elementary school to then yeah. get in middle school, to, it just starts so early. And so mm-hmm. I'm just seeing more kids than ever who want to make 104, like you're describing, Cassie, 104 on every test they take and want to get their personal record in every track meet they run in. And that, mm-hmm. you know, they feel like they have to be the star of the, the show when they're in a play. I mean, it's just hitting perfection in all the spaces. And so I think there's a lot of things that are contributing mm. to it. That's just a few of the ones that come to mind immediately. <laughs> when you think about worry and anxiety, they can be such abstract terms. They're just so big and they encompass so many things. Do you have like yes. a simple, concise definition that you use with parents and with kids uh, for those two words? Yes. I talk about in Worry-Free Girls, I talk about this worry continuum and that fear is kind of on one side of it. And obviously we're afraid of something and we're afraid when we think about that or if we feel like we're in the presence of it, like a spider or a snake or something. And then worry is more pervasive, but worry is typically about something in the past or the future. Mm -hmm. If we're worrying, we're not in the present moment and we're worried about, it's more kind of subject oriented. And then anxiety, I always talk about it with kids in my office, like the one loop roller coaster at the fair. So, you know, every one of us, the four of us, on this Zoom included. I mean, we we all have hundreds of what are called intrusive thoughts every day. And so if I'm not anxious, that intrusive thought, worst case scenario thought, I just failed thought, my zipper's down thought, you know, whatever it is, it comes in our brain and it goes right back out. But if we're anxious, that thought comes in and then we can't yeah. get it out of our minds. And the same is true for kids. And so I always think about that one loop. And, and I did, you know, at this point, writing all these books on worry and anxiety. I've read a lot of books on it too. And so in all the research, the definition I came up with is that anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. Mm. So it's too hard. I'm too small. I can't do it. Rather than it's tiny and I can handle it, which is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's tiny. We can kick them out and listen to truth. Exactly. Um, You say in the book that anxiety is born out of fear, but has a response that is disproportionate to the fear itself. What is that fear? What kinds of things are kids afraid of that are making them anxious? That is such a good question. And, you know, I I wish that I had a timeline to show you all because that's what we would really talk about is basically most of the young children I have encountered talk to parents about their biggest fear is typically being away from their parents or Mm -hmm. something bad happening to their parents. They get a little bit older and I talked to two families of elementary school kids this week that their kids' biggest fear and what they were looping about was throwing up. And so Mm -hmm. typically that's a kid who doesn't throw up very often, but they go to a birthday party and one person throws up or they throw up at school and now they can't stop thinking about throwing up and it's looping. And then finally, as anxiety does, their body gets on board and so they actually end up getting nauseated, bless their hearts, and sometimes throw up, you know. And then we get a little bit older and it shifts to... My friends are going to think I'm annoying or I'm going to fail and I'm going to fail this class or, you know, it, it basically, if we could track the scariest thing for kids at each developmental level, the thing that matters the most to them, that's what's going to loop, which is why when we sit with parents, they will so often say, I never had any anxiety until I had kids. Because mm. the thing that's most important to you all of a sudden got a million times more important. And so, of course, it feels like that's where you would loop as a parent. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I love that definition that you just gave us from your book it, that says, with anxiety, uh, we overestimate threats or problems and underestimate 
ourselves. You can see how a lack of perspective makes both sides of that equation worse. Mm -hmm. How do we help a kid develop a sense of perspective that's more accurate? And how is that going to help? That's so good. I love that you're, we're even talking about that because that's, I mean, in all the things we could talk about, anxiety being one, but a lot of other things that I would say in 30 years have changed. One is definitely a lack of perspective, especially mm-hmm. among girls. I mean, I feel like D- David probably talked to that to y'all about this, but I feel like I'm not hearing kids say I'm stressed anymore. They say I have anxiety. You know, they're not sad. They say they're depressed. I hear at least four girls talking about toxic relationships every single week when they're just having normal conflict. And so that sense, if we were going to think about a one to 10 scale, that sense of really two to seven, where we all know so much of life happens, doesn't exist for them. They're bumping up against 10 all the time. Mm. So my favorite way to help kids develop perspective is to literally talk about that scale. I do it in my office all the time. And I'll say in a calmer moment, not in an upset moment, but tell me what a 10 would be on your scale. And then when that child starts to spin out, that we start with a lot of empathy and really listen and then say, that sounds so hard. Now, what number do you think it is on your scale? And mm. and I have so many girls who will say, you're right. I thought it was a nine, <laughs> but I guess it's really a four. Or I guess it's a six. And I think that gives them that automatic sense of perspective. We talk a lot, we have a whole chapter devoted to it in Are My Kids on Track, a book that David and Melissa, our director and I wrote together. But I love that you're asking that and and we're even talking about it. Yeah. Okay. How does what we as Christians believe about worry and anxiety play into how we parent an anxious child? I think in some ways it doesn't play in enough would be my answer mm. to that question. And I talk about in the book, the verse, I kind of anchor the last section. I talk about the book's divided up into understanding help and hope. And in the hope section, I talk about John 16, of in this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And, and I think part of what I think has happened culturally is that pre-pandemic, I really felt like kids were developing this really rich emotional language sometimes to their detriment. But I'm hearing more kids than ever before sitting in counseling for the first time who say, it was my idea to go, which I think is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like they're much more astute about their own mental health and emotional lives. Y'all are all younger than I am, but (laughs) certainly than I was when I was growing up. And I would guess maybe when y'all were growing up too. I mean, I think this generation is talking about it more than ever before. And I felt like there was this chasm developing between their emotional lives and their spiritual lives. And and the reality is we want kids to have a faith that really informs their feelings, that yeah. faith is driving the car, not their feelings. And, and so I think part of what was happening was we were getting away from the concept of living in the fallen world and the mm-hmm. church. And all that prosperity gospel stuff and, and social media contributes to it, but it was us too on social media. I mean, I always mm-hmm. think about how often we would see the hashtag living my best life and the best day ever t-shirts. And I don't think I've seen either since the pandemic started, but <laughs> you know, we sure were back then. And, and I think that's part of the problem because if we're all going to be honest, I'm maybe living my best life for three minutes a day mm-hmm. <laughs> because I live in a fallen world and every relationship I have is going to be, that's going to permeate that. And every great day I have, there's going to be some fallenness to it. Every wonderful job, Daystar is wonderful. It's not perfect. You know, in every space that's going to happen. And I think we got away from talking to kids about that and equipping them with those kind of truths. And so I really want kids to understand 
we have hope because of Jesus. Mm-hmm. We live in this fallen world, but that's why we overcome the world. And so, yeah. you know, you have power against tiny or whatever worry monster comes your way because you're not alone in this. Yeah. And, and he's already overcome. I think communicating those messages feels so important. Hey friends, it's March and that means Easter is right around the corner. In fact, Easter is in March this year. It's part of the reason I'm pumped to tell you about one of our sponsors who's got a really special Easter deal. This is a great time to get some new resources to disciple your family. Our friends over at Lithos Kids are having an Easter basket sale. They've got the brand new Little Pilgrims Big Journey complete box set. It's now available. Guys, I can't tell you how much I love this resource. If you don't have it, you need to go check it out. Kids and parents have loved reading about Bunyan's beloved tale of Christian and his adventure to follow the king's path to Celestial City. And now you can get all three books in one box set along with a map and it comes with a coloring book and the whole thing is just 60 bucks. You can use the code FAMILY10 to get 10% off your entire order at Lithos Kids right now. So what a great discipleship opportunity. To find all this, go to lithoskids.com. See all the items in their Easter promo, including their new release, The Parables of Jesus and the Kingdom of God Bible Storybook. Guys, we love Lithos Kids. You're going to love them too. Go check it out today, lithoskids.com. And remember the promo, Family 10, to get 10% off your entire order. Hey, listeners, we live in a world where anxiety, depression, and weariness seem to be the basic descriptors of our lives. For many of us, our calendars and our plates are overfull, yet our lives still lack joy. But it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus invites you to have true and abundant joy that's only found in Him. In John 15, Jesus reveals three very surprising pathways to finding this type of joy. You can discover these pathways in the new book, Overflowing Joy, by author and Bible teacher Tara Dew. This is available at LifeWay.com, and you can save 40% off with the code JOY40. Again, that's J-O-Y, the number four, the number zero, at LifeWay.com. The new book is Overflowing Joy by Tara Dew. Check it out. Something we talk about a lot is that our feelings, they, they can be indicators, so it's important to listen to them, but we can't always trust them yes. in our house. And so like, and that's for that. me. I am like, I had three kids, three and a half and under, and I remember just crying, giving him a bath one night and just telling God, you promised you wouldn't give me more than I can handle. And this feels like more than I can handle. And <laughs> I felt like he was just like, you can't always trust how you feel. You know, Jeremiah yes. says our heart is deceitful and wicked. Yes. and. We talk about how like it's important to know how we're feeling and and to see that as an indicator, but we can't always trust our feelings is like absolute mm-hmm. truth. And so that's good. I love what mm-hmm. you're saying. That's really helpful. That is good. Yes, a psychologist I really like talks about how they're data, not directives. Good. Mm, data, good. not directives. Yeah, I like that. I like that too. Awesome, Sissy. You talk in your book about celebrating partial successes and having the ability to talk about our failures and to laugh at our mistakes, um, which sounds really simple easy to do. Uh, but why do you think that's so hard for people to be free enough to laugh at their mistakes? Mm. Fix us. Well, <laughs> I don't do it either. I fix myself too. Yes. I mean, I, I would say the perfectionism that we were talking about earlier, I think that is is more significant, more profound than ever before with kids. And so I tell that I have that conversation in my office 
probably daily with parents. I want you to fail in front of your kids. I want you to go do things as a family that no one does well. I had a dad who said, really, you're telling us we're supposed to all go do something we suck at. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) yes, I don't care what it is. I want you to do something together that no one does well. And Chelsea, to your point, I want you to laugh while you're doing it. And and I don't know if any of y'all are perfectionists or if y'all are Enneagram people, if you're ones on the Enneagram. Adam, are you that? Aren't you that? I have, according to my counselor, I have a wing one. <laughs> according to my wife, I'm a 10. Hey. <laughs> okay, wow. That was good. That's cute. Um, well, Cassie, you had your hand up. I have an eight. Oh, no, I was just, I was holding up my oh, eight you're fingers. An eight. You're an <laughs> eight. eight. She was saying, amen, seven. Adam, amen. I'm an eight out of a 10. <laughs> yes, there you go. I've got some more self-awareness than Adam. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. No. That's awesome. No, but that's so helpful too, because I'm like, so you're telling me when I cry, when I burn breakfast, that's communicating mm. something to my children about how yes. like when mom makes a mistake, she yeah. gets really upset. She's yes. not laughing. She's if, like, yes, and exactly. so that means when I make a mistake, I should get upset. And that's yes. convicting. Yeah. And one of the things the research says is in a two-parent household, there's often an anxious parent and a non-anxious parent. Mm. And the non-anxious parent is usually dismissed. And what I love about the non-anxious parent is they have more of a sense of humor so much of the time. Mm. And and I think most often women are the anxious parents, not always, but but most of the time. And I think often are perfectionists. And those of us who are perfectionists, I, I love that none of you all are. I think that's amazing. But we are so intense. I mean, everything we do is intense. And and I think kids even interpret that intensity, even if we're not crying when we fail, if we're just intense about it, that comes through to them as anxiety. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how they translate yeah. that. And so being able to laugh and have a sense of humor in those times and do the work ourselves to do that is totally. such a gift to them. Yeah. I do see sometimes our, we have a a child who's more anxious than others. And sometimes when we laugh at mistakes, it almost drives him even deeper into it because he feels laughed Mm -hmm. at or like, you know, he's, it's so not there. We're so not free that we almost have to be not walk on eggshells, but there's a sensitivity around the kind of open wound of how do, how do people look at me? How do people feel about me? all the time. And it may not always be perfectionism so much as insecurity, maybe even just around his impression he gives off or, yeah. or, and I think like that's inherited. I am, I'm the more anxious of the two parents in our relationship. Chelsea, would you say that's true? I see you nodding. I know that. <laughs> and I'm getting anxious about how people feel about thinking about our marriage right now as they listen to this podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I love the way you described it. Cause I do want that level of freedom to be able to say, mm-hmm. Hey, we can, we can laugh. We can laugh this yeah. off. And I want that. Well, and I'm glad you said that, Adam, because I think it really starts with laughing at ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the more they watch us do that, I think the freer they feel to do it. Amen. Yeah. Demonstrating it. Yeah. So it sounds like Adam wants to go ice skating with our boys. No. <laughs> We're actually going tomorrow. We'll be at the Galleria if y'all want to show up. Chelsea once informed me that anyone can ice skate. And then she saw me try. And she no longer <laughs> says that. It's, it's not true. Anyone cannot ice. Some people can ice skate. Some cannot. <laughs> Um, Okay, Sissy, um, I love talking about coping mechanisms Mm. because I'm a nurse and I see what what poor coping mechanisms do to people as it affects um, healing and thriving and that very few people were raised to know what some good coping mechanisms even are. Mm. Okay, but in your book, you say children actually develop their own strategies for coping with worry. Your daughter has some right now that she probably doesn't even know are strategies. How are kids coping with stress and are there healthy ways to help them cope? 
I think kids who are anxious in the absence of healthy coping strategies, I think most of them develop the same coping strategy, which is control. Okay. And so I'm going to develop this super elaborate bedtime ritual where I have to say this and then you have to say that and then I do this and then you close the door and if you get it out of order, I'm going to melt down or we're going to have to start over and do the whole thing again. Mm. Or even when I get out of the car at school, we have to have this elaborate ritual that's really about control. Or Mm. I don't necessarily look like I have rituals or control coping strategies, but when my little brother comes in my room and messes it up, I'm certainly going to just lose it because he has disrupted my sense of control. And so helping them develop healthier strategies, because we know control doesn't work for very long. Yeah, that's another example, Sissy, I love of something that we could do a better job demonstrating as parents. And that's why I'm kind of looking, not kind of, I'm very much looking forward to your book about the worry-free parent. This is when we demonstrate to them that our temper is just this, this hair trigger. Yeah. Or that our patience is a hair trigger or that their their quality of not being able to not having to bother us with things is a hair trigger. Mm-hmm. And you go that like we foster an environment in which we are so anxious that things go perfect, uh, especially in public, that we create a lack of like our own ability to cope with our kids being imperfect. And then that, right. that sets a cascading effect in our households of saying like, we need to be worked up. We need to be worked up mm-hmm. if we don't have this right. And that is mm-hmm. not uh, not good for my own heart, like physically or meaning in the spiritual sense, who I am in Christ, let alone what we show to our kids. Yeah. Yeah. So, see, one of the things you say happen. in your book is that God can and will use hurt in our daughter's lives, even big hurt for her good and his glory, which is so, it's scriptural, it's from Romans. I love it. I want to mm-hmm. unpack it though. You know, sometimes that can be, it can feel like something for a parent that feels almost trite and unhelpful because it is true, but it, it's like in the dark moments, in the level 10 moments, it's hard to explain that. Now, most of us as parents are scrambling to prevent our kids from getting hurt. And right. even what you talked about earlier, that can be a contributing factor to this. If we're driving for perfection all the time and we want our kid to be happy constantly, maybe we're, we're fostering entitlement or we're fostering anxiety. I would love to hear you talk to the parent who's going, I, I really want to do a good job. And you're saying God's going to use hurts for his glory. What's the balance between letting my kids face some failures, some difficulty, some unhappiness, some hurts, and pointing them uh, theologically to God? And then also the the balance of going, but I also want to be this parent who does provide for my kid this happy environment, this um, hurt-free environment when possible. How do we how do we help navigate that? Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And and you know, the two most common parenting strategies in light of anxiety are escape and avoidance. And so mm. it, it, and that feels like good parenting. My child is in distress. Of course, I'm going to pull him out. And back to what you were talking about from a spiritual standpoint, we know suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. Amen. And, and that's what we want for them. You know, we don't want kids who know how to skate through life. We want kids who know how to handle when the hard things come and the hard things are going to come. And so if we're not equipping them when they're younger, they're going to fall apart when they're older. And so the balance, I think, really is your presence. Mm-hmm. I mean, the balance is allowing them to struggle, allowing them to not pull them out of school when they hit some hard friendships. Now, that's not to say there are never reasons to pull them out of a school situation, but when they get to seventh grade and it's hard for everyone and girls are mean or guys are mm-hmm. insensitive or, or whatever it is, we let them sit in that with a lot of support. 
And we do a lot of empathizing and we do a lot of asking questions. That sounds so hard. What do you want to do? How can I support you? What can I do to help you? What do you think would be a good thing to do? What do you think God would want you to do in this? I think Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel like we're throwing them in the deep end because we're there with them. And mm-hmm. so our presence is what I think makes the biggest difference. And and the thing is, I mean, working with anxious kids over and over in a counseling office, I believe anxious kids are some of the most manipulative kids on the planet hmm. because they don't want to do the scary thing. And so mm-hmm. they figure out how to work us and manipulate us so they don't have to. But Another form of control, like you said. Exactly. They're- yeah, that's a great point. Yes, exactly. But the flip side of that is research also says that kids derive confidence from doing hard things and that the harder it is, the more confidence they derive from it, mm-hmm. which is, again, suffering produces perseverance. I mean, we're back to that verse that research is actually backing it up. And so you know, our job is to teach kids life skills while they live yep. under our roof. And those mm-hmm. are a part of those life skills, mm-hmm. but they don't go in alone. Yeah. yeah. I love what you're describing there, that it, it, to intentionally have our kids do hard things, but not isolated things, right? We're, we're saying, we're going to have you do something difficult. I'm not like locking you out of the family in order to do so. We're going to yes. be alongside them to do it. Uh, yes. One of the other things you said in the book that I thought was really interesting is that one of the things you say to anxious girls is that you care so much and that's the bottom line of why you worry. Mm. I think that line is really interesting. And I'd love to have you unpack it a little bit for us because I think the danger is to think that the the parenting strategy is to say, if I could help my kid not care, or if I could mm-hmm. help my kid, mm-hmm. um, hey, don't care so much. It sounds, you know, almost callous to say to a child. So how do we see, when we see that our worry is rooted in, hey, you care so much, or I think one of the other lines you said, you're so great at this. That's why you're so mm. anxious. How do we navigate that as a parent? I just see you caring too much about something without just saying, well, hey, stop caring. Right, right. Yes. I love that you just did that because that's a cognitive behavioral therapy tool called reframing the thought or flipping the thought. And the reality is every child, and there have been thousands I have seen now with anxiety, every child is that is anxious is really bright. They're really conscientious. They care deeply. They try hard. It's all these beautiful parts of who God made them to be. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they can't turn the volume knob down. So they care mm. about all the things and they don't know how to, to balance that. They're almost trying too hard most of the time or listening too closely, paying too much attention. And so I think kids are going to default toward thinking something's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Girls in particular, and a lot of boys default toward thinking something's wrong with me. And that's why I have that conversation to say, It's actually a beautiful part of who God made you to be. And we're just going to help you get to where those things don't have as much power. And so to say this is because of who God made you to be, and I love that this is part of who you are, is really flipping that thought into a positive. And, And even with parents, that's one of the things I talk about in the parenting book coming out, is that I believe I'm hearing parents get angrier. You mentioned anger, I think, a little bit ago. I'm hearing parents talk about being angrier than ever, too. And I really think 99.9% of the time, maybe 100% of the time, what's at the root of that is anxiety. Hmm. And I think for parents to be able to see I'm anxious because I love my kids so desperately. Like they matter so much to me and I want good for them. And so I get tripped up in the anxiety. I think it lets helps us take ourselves off the hook a little and can help them do the same. Mm. Do you have any appointments available today? (laughs) I think I can get to Nashville uh, by noon. (laughs) Just kidding. 
Okay. So in my experience, I've been in children's ministry for, it's been almost 19 years. And I would say most kids struggle with anxiety on some level, you know, and it could just be like, you know, separation anxiety for a little bit or anxiety about grades or social anxiety. How does a parent, how would you help a parent decide when that goes through, like goes from being like a common thing that they're going to work through as a family to, okay, we need to get help. I love that you're thinking about that too. Um, Y'all ask such great questions. I, I mean, I really wrote those books to, I mean, my purpose was to keep kids out of counseling. Now, obviously I think mm. counseling can be a really great sure. thing. Yeah. But so much of what we do in anxiety work is cognitive behavioral therapy. And Cognitive behavioral therapy are really practical things that parents can do at home. And so I I usually say to parents, not because I think my books are so amazing, but because I want parents to have, well, that's kind. I want parents (laughs) to have tools and to say, try these tools. And I will usually say, give it three months. Work on these things for three months because what we're doing with kids in those times, Chelsea, I'm, I'm speaking in your wheelhouse. You could correct me on this, but my understanding is that it takes a month to create a new neural pathway. And that's what we're doing in the brains Mm -hmm. of kids as we're teaching them better methods to deal with their anxiety. And so three months gives them a good enough time span to work on these tools. And then if it feels like it hasn't moved the needle, then I will say to Mm -hmm. parents at that point, I want you to take your kids to counseling. And then I also say to parents, and then practice the skills for six months. And it feels like if you're not moving the needle, then maybe at that point you talk about medication. You know, they're kind of stop gaps that we look at. Yeah. On when do we do these different things? Well, what I love about your books is it's making those tools accessible to the masses who might not have access to Mm. good counseling. And my husband's a biblical counselor and he does private practice, but he's also taught counseling classes at our church to try and equip lay counselors. And he would love to work himself out of a job. I mean, I, you know, it'd be so great if the the people of, you know, God's people in the church were equipped to do what yes. he does, you know? Yes. You know, Larry Crabb says, we may have said that at y'all's church. Larry Crabb used to say, we lost him, sadly, but he's mm-hmm. a psychologist that said, if mm-hmm. the body of Christ was he, being who the body of Christ is called to be, we wouldn't need counselors anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but that. your resources are helping move the needle in that because not everyone has access to Sissy Goff. Mm-hmm. And while we live in a city with lots of great resources, not a lot of people do. And so it, and even if you have the great resources, maybe you can't even afford them, right? Because counseling can be expensive. Mm-hmm. And yes. so that's another reason I, I really appreciate the resources you're putting out. You. Okay. For the parent who right now is overwhelmed, maybe they're anxious about their kid's own anxiety. What encouragement or compassion do you offer them today? Mm. Speaking of different psychologists, Dan Allender's another one of my Mm. favorites. And I went to a parenting seminar where he talked about, he actually was quoting attachment theory when he said, good parents get it right 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think, man, 50% of the time, that is not much. And I think any parent who has invested the time to listen to a parenting podcast loves their kids. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, anybody true. who's spending time with you all wanting to listen to today. And so there you are already doing so many things right. And the fact that you would invest in their hearts just by wanting to study them and wanting yeah. to study how you can help them. And and I think it is, I would say giving yourself grace. This is one of the things I talk about in the new book. Giving yourself grace is more important than trying harder. That's good. I think when we try harder, we just drive ourselves into the ground and we get more tense and more anxious and more angry. And so giving yourself grace, receiving God's grace for you and knowing that God chose you to be the parent of each of your kids on purpose, even the harder one. Yeah. (laughs) 
Who shall go unnamed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not naming but, names. But one child is the hard one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For Christian parents, we want to find our direction, our comfort, and our greatest truth from God's word. Uh, we've talked some about Romans 5 today, but what scriptures have been especially precious to you as you have counseled people through anxiety? Mm. Well, John sixteen thirty three that we just talked about is definitely one of them. And the other one is my favorite verse to talk about with girls in my office, hands down. It's John, 1 John 3, 18 through 20, and this is in the message. And it says, my dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. Yeah. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, mm. even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. Amen. So good. Beautiful. And so moving anxious kids to a place of purpose and to love and to thinking about somebody else, I think can be one of the best, obviously the way to shut down debilitating yeah. self-criticism. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thanks for pointing us to Christ there. I, I, that's what our families need. We need the gospel. Mm. Not yes. Sometimes in anxiety, you tell a perfectionist, hey, you're, you're not getting perfectionism right, and it doesn't really help. They just go, I know, <laughs> I'm just I'm trying harder. Or I love what you said too, but like if you're listening to this podcast, which you know anybody who's going to hear this is listening to the podcast. And so <laughs> what you said at the beginning about people that are, one of the reasons we have so much anxiety in parents is you hear so many things about, here's what you can do better, here's what we can do better, here's yeah. what we can do better. And I would be so sad if somebody walked away even from this episode going, okay, that was a lot of wisdom from Sissy and, uh, you know, some questions and some topics yeah. and some books and some more. And we just felt like, it felt like we were just stacking more mm. things to get right on top of them. And I love that you're talking about there at the end of that kind of the set free, even when it's right. I can't remember exactly how mm, that word is. Even it, when even, there's something to it. Yeah. Even when there's something to it. Even when there's something yes. to it. That there's something better for us in Christ. That's so good. Mm. Sissy, your, your ministry is such a blessing. Yeah. I always, I'm always jealous when I listen to you or David talk that somebody out there is getting one-on-one -on -one time with you to talk through their own personal problems. So I bet you're a huge blessing to families that yeah. get that time, that, that get in the room with you. But thank you, like Cassie said, for writing things that bless so many. Yeah. If there's one thing we can do to bless you, I think it's asking our listeners to pray for you. So if mm. we if we could, before we let you go, what are some of the ways that our listeners can pray for Sissy Goff as they're listening to this episode? Mm. Well, that's a great question. I would say just, I think the daily work of what we do. I mean, it's just a lot of heavy lifting. and I believe it. And gets wearisome and burdensome and I think that's probably the biggest that I would not only get to be a, a person who shares hope, but experiences and feels it, you know, knows yeah. the Amen. truth of that. That's good. Amen. What, what you guys do where you let somebody talk about their darkest and their hardest and they come mm -hmm. in and lay that at your feet day after day, hour yeah. after hour, that has got to weigh on you. And part of the nature of that job is that you don't get to go somewhere and and process and debrief right. and say, "Oh, guess what this person is up to." You don't get to you don't get to laugh at their mistakes somewhere and make light of yeah. it. You just right. gotta, you've got to bear that burden. And mm -hmm. I know that's biblical that we bear one another's burdens, but even in the uh, anonymous and in the difficult yeah. that you carry, just know that um, we are grateful for you and for your ministry and how you are uh, leading our churches and leading our families to bless a generation of kids who desperately needs this Savior in Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening, friends. If you think it's as important as we do to disciple our families, please help us out by giving us a great review wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit one of our sponsors and share this episode with one of your friends who definitely needs it. I guarantee there's somebody out there who needs to hear what we talked about today. 
If you want to keep up with us, you can join the conversation at the Family Discipleship Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We love you listeners, and we will see you again soon for a Father's Day bonus summer episode.